You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Well, guys, good morning. Delighted you're here. Should we, should we just pray before we start? Father God, we want to become more aware of your presence. Thank you for your presence. Lord, as we prayed this morning, that your kingdom would come here on earth. Would that be so? Would your reign and rule increase in this place? In our hearts, in our understanding, in our expectancy, Lord. As we sang this morning, would we be shaped and moulded and changed more into your likeness? But as we sang this morning, would you be worshipped? Because you're worthy of our worship. King of kings and Lord of lords. We acknowledge you as God. We love you. I pray that we would make so much of you, that we would make much of Jesus this morning. Open our hearts to be sensitive and responsive to you. All that you have for us, but ultimately all that you are, we worship. Amen. You know, we've, we've just had a week off and um, I had two dreams. Well, I probably had more than two dreams, but I had two dreams that were the same dream while we were away. And I've had that a few times. I'm often like, what is that? Is the Lord trying to say something? And uh, the most bizarre dream that basically I stood in front of you like this and for the first 15 minutes I just cried. And I had that dream twice. And I think if I did it, it would be a bit uncomfortable and it would be a bit awkward. Um also, I'm not particularly feeling like I'm about to do that, but I was like, Lord, what are you doing? What? what? Like, I often think about my dreams and ponder if the Lord is speaking to them, but to have the same dream twice in a week was like, Lord, what are you saying? And, you know, I think he wanted to do two things. One is break our hearts for him and for each other, and the second one is break our hearts for the city. And uh, I'm not going to cry in front of you because it would be awkward and uncomfortable, but I do think that's what he's trying to do with us. And I do think that's what potentially he's trying to do with us throughout this series. And so I just pray that that is the reality. Um, partway through a series that I've been doing called the Externally Focused, the Outward Looking, the Outward Focus Church. If you've missed any of it, I'd encourage you to catch up. I often speak in series, and so one week will make sense, hopefully more sense in the light of another, but particularly so this week, I'd say. Because I want to tell you a story that for some of you, again, may make you feel uncomfortable. And um, I just want to warn you of that, particularly if you're here for the first time. Don't panic. You need to put this in context of previous weeks. But equally, some of you are absolutely going to love it. And I want to kind of warn you for that as well, because some of you are going to think, Paul, you are literally my hero. Like, I, do you do T-shirts and, like, name badges or, like, key rings or whatever they are? The way you live and the, the thing you've done there is just literally unbelievable. It is like top notch. I'm going to go and do it. And yet others of you are going to significantly question my judgment. And um, you're actually going to think, am I even willing to be in this church? Do I walk out partway through? Is that awkward? Do I leave it till next week? Can I justify being in this church because it's co-led by Steph and therefore I can offset it with her integrity? And, and, and you're, gonna, you're laughing now, but you're, me. you're thinking, Paul, that is actually literally just wrong. 
and you, you, that is filthy, actually, and you've, you've stained us by talking about it. Um, honestly, I need to tell you, first of all, this is past behavior, not current behavior. It just happens that the past was like, it's probably about two and a half, three weeks ago, so it's not that long. <laughs> but please, please don't judge me too harshly. Anyway, I'm traveling down the motorway one evening, and uh, I'm sticking to the speed limit, so please don't judge me on that. I was like religiously sticking to the speed limit. And um, I try and stick to it anyway, but I was doing so particularly this week because I could see on the other side of the road, on the motorway, I just kept seeing the double flashes of the speed cameras going off. So I'm like, I am sticking to this speed limit. And we must have passed about 10 speed cameras, and I've seen 15 or so flashes. So I'm like, you are not catching me for speeding. Anyway, um, I've got people behind me as I'm stuck to the speed limit. You'll have all found this. They're like flashing me, almost tailgating me, like getting right on my bumper, flashing me to get out of the way. But I'm sticking to the speed limit, as annoying as it might be for them. I'm like, one, I don't want to speed. Two, I'm watching all the speed cameras on the other side that maybe you haven't noticed. And actually, you should be thanking me because I'm saving you from getting a ticket. Anyway, a few days later... We're making the return journey on the other side of the same motorway. And so I've clocked. I know those speed cameras are going to be catching some people, but they're not going to catch me because I don't speed anyway. Just FYI. Anyway, it's like it's, it's evening, so it's a bit darker, and you can really see the flashes going. Well, you will see them going anyway. It's the road's a bit quieter, and I'm in the slow lane, so I'm on the side where the, the speed cameras are. And I've got cruise control on, so I know I'm not speeding, but I've got people whizzing past me in the fast lane. And um, can, can, you, can you kind of picture what's going on here? Because it's quite important that you, you see what's happening. But these guys are whizzing past me in the fast lane. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, you may as well be the same people that were behind me the other day flashing me. Now, I know that is a huge sweeping statement to make that critical judgment of them. But it's the same kind of action and behavior. Anyway, we approach the speed camera area where you're in the zone. You know where you like you know you could get done because they've got the little markings and you've just passed the camera. And I've waited until we're about 5 meters past the speed camera and I've double flashed my main beam. Okay, so I've kind of imitated the speed camera to those guys. And actually, I, I don't want to say I just did it like that. I actually did it really well. What I did is, because you get the double flash, I did my main beam and then I did my fog lights. So it came from two different angles, which is exactly how it happens if you ever got done. You'll, you'll know that. I did it perfectly. And my positioning was perfect because I was in the slow lane. So I've got the angle right. Okay, now if you can picture what's happening, these guys have no idea it's coming. They instantly stick their brake lights on slightly to slow down because they think they've just been caught. Then they slow down enough that they're doing below the speed, ca the speed limit, as you do when you think a police car's tailing you. And um, I then just kind of gently cruise past them doing the speed limit. And I look at their faces of like shock and anguish as they start to process the fact that they've just been done. They've got a speeding ticket and they're about to get quite an exceptional charge coming their way. Now, some of you laughed at that because you think that is funny and that's the kind of thing you're going to do. Some of you are like, I can't believe you do that. That is wrong behavior. Now, some of you are like now putting me on a par with being a bank robber. I don't think it's that bad. And I've got to honestly say, I've slightly embellished it because I want to tell a point. Also, I don't recommend doing it on any level. I don't think it's good behavior. Look, some of you are like jaw-dropping disbelief of like, what? I can't believe you do that. Anyway, let me just slightly put you at ease because there is a point to the story. You're like, what? There's a point? Yes, there is a point. Don't panic. 
as we focus on being an externally, you're like, where are you going to go with this? As we focus on being an externally focused church, the point I want to drive at today is that our beliefs have to align with our behavior. Our beliefs have to align with our behavior. Now, maybe that was a bad example, the example I gave, because it isn't the best. But I do object to people shooing me out of the way so that they can speed. And so I tried to bring about some kind of change. Now, admittedly, that's the wrong kind of change, and I shouldn't have done it. But don't let that analogy get in the way or tie you up in knots, because really this is the real point. To be an externally focused church, we've got to create systems that continually reinforce our values. Do you see the link that I made with that? Probably not at all. It's a good job I pointed it out, otherwise you'll be confused. But to align our beliefs, we have to align them with our behaviours. We've got to create structures that allow us to live out the things that we value and the things that we believe. You can't document that. You can't programme that. It's about having a significant paradigm shift. We've got to change our mindset. This is now about having a worldview. You see, a program has a beginning or an end, but a paradigm is a pattern or a model that initiates and, and is the starting point from which everything else will flow. I honestly believe that is so important for the people that we want to be. So what we're doing here has to go beyond us. It has to go beyond just how we act. It actually has to flow out into everything we're part of, wider than just a Sunday setting. Our vision has to be greater than anything we could humanly achieve. It has to be, otherwise it's based on us. It's not based on something of the kingdom of God. To align our beliefs with our behaviours, therefore we've got to create structures for the things that we value. So it's not just what we say, it's what we also do. So for, for so many people sometimes, following Jesus and doing the stuff that Jesus did becomes a sentiment rather than a value. We don't want to be that. We don't want to just talk about it. We actually want to do it and live it out. We want this stuff to be so embedded in our DNA that it becomes who we are. It's, it's a natural outworking and an overflow of the fact that Jesus has touched something in our lives. So we have to set ourselves up to do the things that we believe without even thinking about it, almost just becomes a subconscious action. So let me give you, let me give you a really brief example, okay? When we all need gas and electric, don't we? But rather than, that's probably a bad example right now because I don't want to get caught up in talking about the cost. We actually, normally, in a normal world, you don't even think about it. I just pay the direct debit, we get gas and we get electric. It just so happens at the moment, I thought about it quite a bit, prices are going up. We've been with two companies, both of which recently have gone bust and all of that kind of thing. But normally, you flick the switch, there it is. You get the thing that you need. You don't think about it because it's just something that happens in the background to allow for it. Actually, I deliberately give you that as an example because I think it's worth us just pausing and reflecting that not everybody does have that. In fact, many people in this city, many people in this area don't have gas or electric in the way that they need it to provide heating and various other things for them. But my, my broader point is this. We have to set ourselves up for the things that we believe. In the book of Acts, the, the Greek widows have been overlooked with the distribution of the groceries. It was a problem that wasn't going to go away. So the early church leaders chose not to address it on a behavioural level. They could have said, hey, guys, come on, stop complaining, or can't you manage on less? Thankfully, they didn't. They didn't say those things. They did something about it. They chose to address it on a structural level. 
So the, they set up a mechanism that would look out for the physical needs of the church, not just in that day, but you could say actually some of the fruit of what they set up is still happening even today. Good things kept happening even though nobody was paying attention to them. Does that make sense? Because that's the point I want to drive at. That's the church I believe that we need to do if we're going to have a significant impact and drive and sense of transformation in this city. Good things keep happening even when nobody's paying attention to them. So we've got to think beyond the media and we've got to have a heart for the long haul. What was Thomas Edison's greatest invention? Most people could tell you, my children could tell you that he invented the light bulb. But actually, was it the light bulb or was it the research and development that flowed from it that was the continuing thing of his legacy? Was it Henry Ford's greatest invention? Was it the Model T or actually was it the assembly line, which has probably changed future generations and even today has a significant impact on us? Was it Walt Disney's greatest creation? What was it? Was it Mickey Mouse or was it like Disneyland? Or was it actually the fact that Disney have created a creatives department that still today is churning out fresh things and fresh material? We have to set things up to do the thing that we believe so that it has a long-term lasting impact regardless of us. Let me, let me just come at this from a slightly different angle. If I said to you, describe to me what this church is like, most of you would reference something around a Sunday environment. If I said to somebody or somebody asked me in another part of this country, hey, what's, what's Manchester Vineyard like? I would probably naturally lean to say something about the Sunday environment. Now, I'm not against that. I get that. But as an externally focused church, we can't measure our effectiveness by a Sunday or by attendance. We want to view it through the lens of transformational change on the community and on the city around us. Therefore, we've got to constantly and consistently be seeking to extend and reinforce who we are and what we want to be. With all of that as the backdrop, if that makes sense, let me just mention six things that I believe that will keep us on track for this, that we need to do and we need to be regularly to allow that to be the case. Six structures that are going to reinforce our behaviours that are vital to being an externally focused, outward-looking church. Okay, the first one I think is probably a given and you'd probably hope for. We've got to have strong scriptural foundations. One of every 16 verses in the New Testament is about the poor or money. Did you know that? That is significant. We've got to saturate ourselves in the gospel. We kind of sung it this morning, but we want, to, we want to do what Jesus did, and we want to do it the way that he did it. So what, what did Jesus do? Well, actually, if we read the gospels, one in 16 verses is about the poor or money. Our thinking about that is therefore going to shape what we do, what the mission of the church is, and therefore how we structure the church to do it. Now, some people love to make this stuff sound really quite complex, but I don't think it needs to be. I think it all really boils down to what did Jesus do? And our thinking about that shapes, therefore, what we do and how we do it. What the mission of the church is, is therefore how we're going to shape what the church looks like or how the church needs to be. Because it's who he is that is important. It's not about programs or placing an emphasis on a program. It's about having a mindset of the people we long to be. Therefore, it starts with all of us deeply, deeply caring about Jesus, each other, 
and the city that he's placed us in. I, I do wonder if that's partly, maybe it's just for me, but that was why I had that dream, because I want to know more of him. I want to learn more about what he did and the way that he did it. The natural overflow of that is going to be a compassionate expression and a response to others around us for each other, but then also for the city. I think that is totally what the Father is trying to do in us and break our hearts for. It's a mindset, and it's a shift sometimes in many of our mindsets. Because for me, I'd say, well, actually then it's not, you're asking me to serve on a rotor to love the city. No, actually, that's not that at all. The whole fabric of who we are is we're called to love each other and therefore live, live, love the city. Therefore, actually, my mindset is going to shift into thank you for the privilege of giving me an opportunity to serve others and to be all that God has made me to be. It's a mindset shift. So the first thing is we've got to be strong in our scriptural foundations. The second one is we've got to talk about it regularly. That's partly why I'm doing this series. It's partly why I think some of the small groups are leaning in to discussing this kind of thing. It's why we ask all of our leaders to talk about it regularly because we've got to build regular rhythms into our time where we talk about the margins of society and our need to minister to them and our need to step into meeting their needs. And it, that significantly relates to our spiritual growth. The message of good news and good deeds resonates with those who know Jesus or those who don't. People who don't know Jesus still need to be loved and shown good deeds, and we're called to do it. We need the previous point of having strong scriptural foundations to ensure it happens, but the Bible is full of God's heart for the less fortunate. Every 16 verses makes a reference to it. Jesus' first public words when he explains the purpose of his ministry, we're just going to read it in Luke chapter 4 verse 18 it says this and it's a reference to Isaiah 61 he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released that the blind will see that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come that is our job description if you ever wanted to know what it is to live out a faith-filled life following Jesus that is it because Jesus's kingdom and mission was good news and it was good deeds, combining words of truth with works of grace. Honestly, I feel the need to keep saying this, and I don't want to overdo it, but it's internally strong, externally focused. It's the people that we're called to be as followers of Jesus. Of course, Jesus loved and nurtured those close to him. Of course, he had a heart for those around him, but he constantly was led towards those further afield. But he always also loved those close to him. Let me just read it in John 13, verse 1. It says this, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He loved his disciples during his ministry on earth. And now he loved them to the very end. He loved his disciples. He loved the people around him. He was desperate to, to love on them. I, I want to say that this morning. I think it's really important. I love you. I've, I think we've got to learn to love each other more. We've, we've, that's the people that we're called to be. I hope that we learn daily to learn each other more and to care for each other and to prefer the other and to put the other person's needs before our own. But Jesus was always going after what he didn't have, not just preserving what he did have. I think that's so important. 
sometimes we can become a social club if we're not constantly reaching out, trying to serve others. It says Luke 15 verse 3. So Jesus told them this story, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Will he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go in search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Of course he will. We have to constantly have an outward looking, outward reaching heart. When pressed to stay in a place where he was appreciated and comfortable, which let's be honest, we can all start to do. He says this, Mark 1.38, but Jesus replied, we must go on to the other towns as well and I will preach to them. That is why I came. I love what's happening here. I love what the Father is doing and stirring among us. I love being part of it in this stage and in this season. But Steph and I so regularly say to ourselves and we so regularly say to others, enjoy this season, enjoy this time because it will not always be like this. We have to have a vision beyond what we currently see. Let's not settle or let's not get comfortable. I honestly, I believe the Father is preparing our hearts for what is next again. I found it in that dream. I just believe that's what the Lord was speaking to me personally about. In Luke 10, Jesus taught about loving one's neighbor. How did he do it? By talking about and telling the story of the Good Samaritan. Outward focused, heart for others, looking outward, loving the lost. In Matthew 25, he was explaining that one day God would judge our truest spiritual condition by how we treat the most unlike us. Again, we kind of referenced it in what we sung this morning, but it's the hungry, the thirsty, the prisoner, the sick, the stranger. And then he kind of pushed that all a little bit further by saying, Matthew 25, verse 40, and the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. The early disciples were so captivated by the teaching of Jesus that they lived it out. They embodied what Jesus had put on them. Galatians 2 verse 10, their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I've always been eager to do. That was the suggestion that came to Paul. Paul says, I've always been eager to serve the poor. James in James 2, 1 to 13, I won't read it because of time, but honestly, read it when you do have time. James was concerned for the poor and he was concerned that they were elevated to a place of honour. Again, so important, another of the earlier followers of Jesus who was captured and captivated by loving and reaching out for those who needed him. One of the first decisions of the early church, as I mentioned earlier, was about the care of the widows. Acts 6, 1 to 7, the disciples got it. That's my point. They spent time with Jesus. They caught something of who he was and his heart for others. They grasped hold of his teaching and it affected their behavior. And therefore, they gave time, energy and resources to it. Our vision has to be a compelling magnetic image of a preferable future. And we've got to talk about it often and we've got to talk about it regularly. The third, the third point is this, we have to make it part of our plans. I'm constantly and consistently trying to give you opportunities to do this. I'm constantly and consistently trying to give myself and our children opportunities to do this. You know, I said a few weeks back, I said, remember if, if every day we did three things, we'd see an increase in transformation, not only in our lives, but in the community around us. The first one was we'd find daily ways to connect with God. The second one is we'd find daily ways to encourage somebody else among this 
church family. And the third one is we'd plus one somebody who doesn't know Jesus. We'd find a way to share or show something of a good deed towards somebody else. Last week I talked about carrying the water. Do you remember that one as well? It's like constantly and consistently finding ways to love somebody else, to show somebody else something of the kingdom. We've got to find ways to grow and to step into what God has for us as we serve him and as we wash other people's feet. I want, I want to encourage you to find ways to do that. What does it look like to be externally focused? What, what would you do about it today, this week, this month, the rest of this year? Well, how do you develop habits and practices to enable you to do that? You know, Christmas is rapidly approaching. What will you do about it? Will you, will you send a card to everyone on your street? that maybe you currently don't know, find their names. Would you send hampers to the street? Today's Halloween. I mean, people around us currently are celebrating evil. Well, what a phenomenal opportunity to step in with something else. How do we find and celebrate the light and the goodness of Jesus? I was reflecting on it being Halloween today, and I was reading John 1. It says this in verse 5, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people and they rejected him. But to all who believe him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. I'm praying for you, and I have been praying for you this week, that you would know the light, that you would receive the light, that you would reflect that light in any and every way possible and make plans to show and to reveal it. We've got to make plans, intentionally stepping into revealing it. Because nobody, as it says in Matthew 5, 15, no one lights a lamp and places it under a basket. Instead, the lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everybody will praise your Heavenly Father. We make it part of our daily rhythm of life. We plan for it to be so. The, the fourth one is this, regularly do it as a church. Not, not just in small groups, not just in an age demographic, not just among our peers, but regularly create wider opportunities for us to get into the game. You know, we're, we're as a group of people together, I believe we have opportunities to, to model what it means to live life as people who give rather than take. That is completely countercultural. I would say. Just personally, let me slip, slip in. I, I regularly thank God for you because you do that to us. I see that modeled to us. I've seen that shown to us and I see that shown to our children. And that is a significant part of our discipleship and our growth personally and therefore as a church. I would, could and I often regularly tell stories to other people that I meet in various places that I meet them about you about what you're up to, about how you love and serve each other and how you serve the needs of the city because it's incredibly powerful. 
is really important. We don't just do this individually or in smaller settings, but we do it regularly as a church. Let me just chuck out some opportunities to you. I think Hettel mentioned the one on the 13th of November, but the, the whole environment of 42 has created opportunities for us to reach into the lives of other people. You could help with some of the community lunches, help with the community fridge or pantry. You could give some time to after school clubs, breakfast clubs, games nights, film nights, getting involved with painting and other jobs on some of the, the more building side of the project, flyering some of the local homes with some of the free coffee and food vouchers that we've been given away. There are so many opportunities to be involved and to serve others. We regularly have to create those spaces where we do what Jesus did in the way that he did it. I regularly think about what will it be like one day when I see and I meet Jesus face to face. Do you ever think about that? Maybe it's just how my mind works. But I often have that um, song in my heart. You, you'll know the one, um, you'll have heard it, I can only imagine, surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you? Be still. Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I often think about stuff like that. I often think about what it will be like to see Jesus face to face. And I often think about the conversations that I would have with him. I think he's more likely to ask me how much I love the church than how big the church is. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think he's more likely to ask me how we loved and served the city rather than the type of refreshments that we serve on a Sunday. And that's no slur on our refreshments team. They do a phenomenal job. And I'm grateful for the welcoming place of hospitality that you give and you create, but that can't become our human focus. But how often does it become? A human focus. Well, they didn't have this morning the thing that I wanted, that I thought I wanted. I think we've got to align and realign our posture to be outward focused. Because I don't think in the in the longer term any of that kind of stuff is the thing that really matters. I think when I see him and we speak face to face, he'll ask me how much I loved you and how much I gave of myself to serve the city. If somebody's thirsty, could I give them a drink? The fifth one is this, we start to think kingdom, not church. And I kind of mentioned some of that last week. We start to think kingdom, not church. Honestly, what worries me most about this series is that some of you may feel like I'm church bashing. It may feel like I'm bruised by the church and therefore I've got to lean towards the city as an outlet. My fear is that I stir in some of you that may feel bruised by church environments or marginalised by the church, that, that it gives this sense of, yeah, it was never really about the church anyway, was it? We're, we're kind of the city-serving church. You know, when I say, I think about kingdom, not church, it can stir people to that kind of reaction. I, I hope you know, though, that's not where I'm coming from at all. In fact, last week I think I kind of said a very similar thing and I almost felt I needed to justify it. And I feel the same again this week. I want to say, no, I'm, honestly, I love the church. I believe deeply in the church. It's the place that's seen my life transformed. It's the place that's believed in me, that the people have spoken hope and truth and life into me, have walked alongside me. 
and discipled me. I believe that Jesus is coming back for it. He loves it. We've got to learn to love the things that he loves. And if you're bruised by the church or have been bruised by the church, I, I honestly want to just awaken you to something afresh and say, don't let, don't let that eat you up or chew you up. Become better, not bitter. Because honestly, it will rob you of all that the Father has for you. But the point I'm trying to get at and drive at is that our lens has to be bigger than just us. Our lens has to be wider than just us. The church is called to look out, to model something, to experience something of the kingdom and usher it into the wider world around us. You know, it's good friends who turn good intentions into good deeds. Let me, let me just say that again. It's good friends who turn good intentions into good deeds. We have to structure ourselves to do that. How do we do that? How do we actually become that? Well, this is the final point. Point six, we infuse serving into all that we do, and particularly into small groups. John Wesley, and I talk about him a lot because I love what he did, and I love the way that he did it. He viewed service and ministry as an integral part of what he called class meetings. Now, I've got to say, I hope, unless you all convince me significantly otherwise, we will never call small groups class meetings. That would be the only thing I kind of question in his judgment. Don't panic, we're not going to do that. But small groups, community groups, home groups, connect groups, whatever you might call them, John Wesley was significantly influenced by a French Catholic nobleman who lived a century before him. And I'm going to try and pronounce his name if I somehow can. He was called Gaston Jean-Baptiste Rentry. Right, anyway, this guy, Rentry, I'm just going to call him that, it's going to be easier. This guy, Rentry, Wesley described that he dedicated his whole life to serving the poor and to encouraging his fellow countrymen to a devout, holy life. It's kind of not a bad way to live when you want to be externally focused and do the things that Jesus did. Anyway, Wesley took some of his thinking and he incorporated it into his small groups. And his thinking and his plan was that he would establish these little gatherings of devout people who would meet weekly. And they met for prayer. They met to read devotional books. They met to distribute food to the poor. And they met for personal religious experience. What they didn't do is they didn't use small groups for personal Bible study. He felt people got enough of that in other environments. He wanted to use them as a springboard and an activation point because he believed that personal and spiritual growth came through service to others rather than careful attention to an introspection of self. Don't you find that fascinating? I do. I've been gripped by it all this week because an outward-looking focus actually is the thing that drives us to personal growth. We often think that growth happens by looking inwardly and facilitating our own needs, but the, an- the reality is it doesn't. Internally strong, externally focused. Wesley put thousands of people on the field of play. He called many, many people to get involved and do this stuff. He called them out of the stands and got them onto the pitch to do the thing that he believed Jesus called us to do. And I, I guess I want to ask you this. What good in this community should thrive because the small group you're in exists? Because it should. What will be different in this world 
a year from now because your small group that you're in exists because it should see we join churches and we join small groups for many reasons the one i'd say we stay for is often relationship with each other and i apologize for this illustration but i think you're going to remember it but community is like sweat it happens when you work okay the more you do it the more you see it serving not only benefits and helps us grow as followers of jesus but it actually is the thing that builds and forms community it's the same with sunday teams it's the same with any kind of activity or thing that we do together it builds and forms community it disciples us on a journey because we're called to do stuff we're called to serve we're called to create environments to be family to invite others into family to love and serve the communities around us some of the context of this series we've been looking at i've read it a few times but hebrews 10 24 says this let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do but encourage one another especially now the day of his return is drawing near it's good friends who turn good intentions into good deeds i really believe that ephesians 2.10, for we're God's masterpiece and he created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us to do long ago. But what I've often found, so often in my life, and I've seen it in so many others, is that it is good friends who turn those good intentions into good deeds. They help us realize it. They help us see it. They spur us on to do it. How many times have we sat with people or chatted with people? We've had meals with people. We've had discussions with people and you start to dream about things. You start to believe for things. We start to call things out. We discuss things. And what we do is we dwell on point one, the teachings of Jesus in the Bible, that we have strong scriptural foundations. That leads us to point two, we talk about it regularly, that leads us to point three, that we then start to make it part of our lives and our plans. That leads us to point four, that we regularly engage in doing it together as a community and as a church. That leads us to point five, that we start to think about kingdom rather than church. That leads us to point six, that we infuse it into our lives, into our small groups. And guess what happens? We actually end up doing it because it's good friends who turn good intentions into good deeds therefore can i be really honest with you i blame you for a lot of the stuff that we've ended up doing now i mean that in the best possible way it's just the way i'd phrase it but of course we filter it in the context of vision and values but you dream and you believe and you seek ways to do things and you love people and you serve people what does that end up looking like well, it ends up looking like we get more involved with Manchester citizens. It ends up looking like we start a food bank during the pandemic. It looks like that we start to give gifts to the, the prison guards and then somehow we get involved in Alpha in the prison. Then it looks like we start to do the stuff that we're starting to do in 422. And I could go on and on and on and on and on because good friends turn good intentions into good deeds and we need to ensure we're in those environments for that to happen because in turn that creates goodwill 
and in turn that creates opportunities to share good news. How many times could you say that is true? That good deeds leads to goodwill, that leads to sharing good news. I found myself sharing my faith so many times in those environments in a very normal way, just through doing good stuff or telling people about some of the good stuff that you're doing. And it opens their hearts to something of the goodwill. It's an access point. And how many times does the gospel then just somehow tumble out? You find language or you find words for the good news because it becomes a natural overflow. All I'd say is we stir people's curiosity. I regularly seek to tell people's stories. Somebody said, would say to me, just walking down the street, where it is, school gates and Tesco, whatever it might be, how, how are you? Oh, yeah, I'm really good, thanks. And I'd slip something else in. I'm not trying to deceive them, but I'd just extend my sentence. Like, I, I had such a good Sunday. Or like, um, did I tell you about this thing, 422? Or did, did you know that they're providing 46 music lessons free a week for some children in the local area? Now, some people just go, oh, yeah, yeah, right. That's, that's the end of it. Conversation over. But some people go, what? So, so, say that again. What did you say? Say, say that again. What was that thing you did on Sunday? What, what, where were you on Thursday night? Who were, who were the people that you had that thing with that you spent time? What were you saying? Sorry? And you just pose another question. Oh, yeah, I was just hanging out with a load of people, and it was so encouraging. I came away just so filled with hope and life. And again, some will be like, okay, yeah. Others, they ask another question. I think that's the moment where you talk to them about Jesus because good deeds lead to goodwill that creates an environment for sharing good news. So often before that, though, comes a really important step that I think we miss, that it's good friends who turn those good intentions into good deeds. Isn't that how Jesus built community? I genuinely believe that's what he did. Matthew 14, sorry, Matthew 4 verse 19, Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I'll show you how to fish for people. They left their nets at once and followed him. If we just aim for community, we're not going to get it because you end up being really quite introspective. It ends up being, well, how can you meet my needs? Here's all my needs. How are you going to meet them? If we aim for outward focus, I believe it's really interesting because you often get mission and you get community because they're linked as an externally focused church, we can't measure our effectiveness by attendance. We want to view it through the lens of transformational change on the community and on the city around us. Therefore, we constantly and consistently seek to extend and to reinforce who we are and what we want to be. We want to learn to love Jesus and love Manchester. Our beliefs have to align with our behaviours. So it's six things. We want to have strong scriptural foundations. We want to talk about it regularly. We want to make it part of our plans. We want to do it regularly as a church. We want to start to think kingdom rather than church. And we want to infuse serving into all parts of who we are, particularly small groups. The more we do it, the more we're going to become it. I hope that's helpful to share this morning. Why don't we stand together? Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.